often when individuals have a critique of American democracy, they get equated with um, a disdain for America. And there may be some, and I know there are some who feel that way. I, am, I don't count myself among them. Um, instead, I understand and appreciate the principles that sit at the heart of American democracy, of pluralism and tolerance and rule of law, um, uh, that there are American aspirations that we say that we strive for around justice and equality. Um, I understand and have worked in many of the institutions that check and balance one another, or at least are supposed to do that, and appreciate this small r Republican idea that as individuals, we have the right to consent to be governed. At the same time, I know that we not only are failing in this moment, and it's a moment that many people are deeply concerned about, but that we have been failing um, to meet those aspirations um, over the course of the long arc of our, of our democracy. And in many ways, we are seeing um, an affirmation of that. Um, we are seeing the results of that um, in live and in color right now. And for me, that raised concerns or, or it raised questions about the way that we can, um, as, as individuals who live in the United States, who um, come here um, and or were born here and organize ourselves inside this democracy, um, how can we respond to or deal with the human instinct for power? Um, for um, uh, to separate from one another um, with the call to be Americans in a multicultural democracy? How do we shape and organize ourselves towards community when in many ways um, we are often called to, led to, um, encouraged to separate um, and wedges are used to divide us? Um, I also think about um, the question of how we can address the inequities that have been with American democracy from its founding um, around race, around issues of gender, around issues of economic inequality. And all of those things um, are leaving Americans and others who live here to question whether or not democracy can work. You know, hence the questions that we ask in the book that we edited and that we all worked on and lead people to pull away from it. And it is that set of concerns um, that are matched up um, against the aspirations that we have that have led me to this work and to work with you all and others to peel back those layers and to do a deep dive to ask ourselves, what is it that we can do given the structures that we have um, to address those challenges and to think anew about the ways that we can actually make, Ameri make American democracy work. So that is what, what drew me to this work and that conversation that you and I had a couple of years ago over nachos in downtown Richmond. Yes, and what excellent nachos they were. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, that was being facetious. So uh, welcome, uh, Dr. Walker. We're so glad uh, you're here. And uh, you've heard Melody addressing the question of how, 
you know, in light of her different experiences, why she gravitated towards this idea. And I'm, I'm going to turn it over to you to sort of guide us through uh, the rest of the hour, but we're so glad you're here. Thank you so much, Thad, and thank you, Melody, for that, that wonderful uh, response. I'm going to uh, turn now to Thad because uh, Thad really serves as an interesting convener around this idea and bringing together an eclectic group of scholars to begin to contemplate uh, this ideal. Uh, and Thad, talk to us a bit to explain what community wealth building is and provide us with a brief uh, overview of history of uh, this ideal and what the possibilities are in the US. Well, uh, thanks, Corey. And first thing I, I want to emphasize, I think part of the uh, strength and power of the idea is it has come from actual effort in actual communities to get things done. And, and recognizing that we need a language to talk about, in particular, how to achieve economic equity and inclusion that, that's different than um, the old anti-poverty framework. Um, and, and I came to that realization through you know, my work in, in the city and I was part of a Mayor Dwight Jones's you know, anti-poverty commission. And, and what we learned uh, in the process of the work and actually engaging in that community was that anti-poverty, although well-intentioned, too often could be heard as anti-poor people. You know, when really the intent of, of the people in the commission was to be empowering and to be asset-based and to recognize that you know, in any community, no matter what, it's federal define poverty rate, you're going to find assets, you're going to find amazing people who are doing really good work. And what we should be trying to do is to, to build upon uh, uh, those strengths. So we, you know, as a group, we decided to shift the frame from anti-poverty to something more positive. And, and community wealth building spoke to that both by flipping it to a positive frame, but also talking and naming the holistic nature of the challenge that, that, that we face. It isn't just education, it isn't just jobs and workforce development, it isn't just housing or transportation. It's all those things together, but, but even more so how they all fit together um, as a system. And so community wealth building speaks to the idea of trying to pursue systemic change, uh, starting at the local level, but then necessarily involving you know, higher levels of government, such as you know, the state and the federal government, because you know, virtually no city has the capacity on its own to meet um, you know the problems at the scale they exist you know and then there's the wealth component part is too is we actually need to bring more economic activity and generate within cities and 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 that means both building from within but sometimes it may mean you know getting capital to come here from without but on terms that democrat communities themselves set so so that's how it came about you know in the richmond context and, and come to the point of a, of a new city agency actually being called the office of community wealth building but there has been parallel work you know at the national and even international level the organization democracy collaborative uh has been uh driving that you know in many places uh, cleveland uh the, the uk many cities involved there um, but that also um, other folks, you know, who are doing equity work that um, maybe weren't using the, the, the phraseology, but were doing in effect the same thing. And, and so Melody and I work together 
you know, we've hit upon four key things. Is one, community welfare requires inclusive community participation on the front end. You have to involve the community, otherwise it's just another elite-driven thing. You know, second, bold equity goal, standing up and saying, you know, the goal isn't just activity, the goal is to accomplish something. You know, in enrichment, is, you know, the equity goal has been really cut poverty in a serious way you know, over in a defined period of time. Other communities, it might be something slightly different. But in any case, set that goal and then measure your progress and hold your community accountable to that progress over time. The thirdly is a holistic approach. So wealth takes many forms. You know, there's financial capital, physical capital, social capital, human capital, and we, we mean all of it because all of it is relevant to the well-being of, of our communities. And, and sometimes you can use the strength in one area to make up for you know a deficit or perceived deficit in another area. You know, and, and the last piece you know is inclusive economic strategies. You know, and, and so. In the Richmond case, based on analysis, you know, we have a, a booming economy in a lot of ways, a strong economy locally, but how is it you have a whole group of people and a whole group of neighborhoods, you know, which are primarily African-American neighborhoods, you know, in parts of Richmond that historically decade after decade have been left out. You know, clearly there's been a lack of intentionality about including that community and business opportunities, you know, access to capital, access to good paying jobs. So let's build the mechanisms that focus on, on that. And, and you know, that's just one strategy. Other communities have come up with different strategies. You know, the key thing is to put all that on the table, put the entire the community's entire wealth on the table and see how do we build a bridge, you know, from those who are prospering to those who aren't. Thank you so much that uh, you provide us with an understanding that this paradigm is inclusive. It's inclusive of multiple measures of well-being and community. Um, it moves to an, any number of economic motives and systems that it's not just singular in its design and it seeks to uh, engage in bold systemic transformative change uh, that's deeply entrenched in cities. Um, I want to turn to, I want to turn now to Julian because part of what that is saying is this paradigm seeks to really uh, uh, uproot those deeply entrenched, those historical forces uh, that mitigate against realizing uh, some semblance uh, of an equitable uh, democracy. And I know your contribution to the, to, the, uh, to the volume really looked at the history of how voting rights, the evolution of voting rights uh, enrichment. Um, talk to us a bit, Julian, about the deep historical nature of these, uh, of, of these levels of inequality uh, and how you've tracked and, and how you've tracked and shaped uh, the ways in which individuals have undertaken civic action to begin sure. to address this. Right. So I think, you know, you know, why are we talking about um, community wealth building in politics and not like community wealth building and economics. And I think it's because there's always been a distinction between America's stated democratic claims and its actual political practices. And people have historically used politics um, to sew up their own um, economic objectives. There's probably no clearer example of that than Virginia. You know, to build off what Thad just articulated, it's really difficult to understand um, this kind of generational, decades-long, deeply entrenched poverty 
in Richmond and the Commonwealth without turning um, to politics to understand how people very intentionally created and compressed groups of people into smaller and smaller enclaves over the course of the 20th century uh, to, to create a, a situation that has been very difficult for people to, um, to organize strategy to meet challenges for. And I think what we see over time in the Commonwealth is a long-standing skepticism of open democracy one all the way back to the colonial area the era but to spare you that history i'll start after reconstruction um in large part because i think it's had a profound influence on the types of problems that community wealth builders find themselves addressing right now the first is that what we begin to see at the turn of the last century are people using politics um, in some ways to reestablish. Uh, some semblance of, of power after the abolition of slavery. And I, you know, I sound like a broken record when I talk about this, but in 1901 and 1902, the Commonwealth of Virginia passes a constitution that effectively and very purposefully and very openly disenfranchises 80% of African Americans and 50, and the dirty secret is 50% of whites. These, it, this, there's a small handful of individuals in the Commonwealth that are responsible for the political decision-making process, which by the way was inextricably linked to this area's economic growth over the course of the 20th century. Virginia had one of the lowest voter turnout rates of any free democracy in the world, and uh, the lowest voter turnout rate of any state in the United States for the early portion of the 20th century. Well, what does that mean? It means that by the turn of the century, many of the public policies, urban renewal policies, slum clearance policies, public housing policies, are in effect dictated by individuals who are elected without a public mandate and are not beholden to entire swaths of the voting population. And it is difficult in some ways to understand how essential community wealth building is in the 21st century without understanding the nature in which people used politics to systematically disinvest people in the building blocks of upward mobility over the course of the mid 20th century. So what we find in Richmond and across Virginia is that African-Americans don't begin voting in the mid 20th century for the sake of voting. They're voting because they know precisely well um, how these policies that are being executed by a handful of individuals are tearing their communities asunder. So they're not voting for the sake of voting or they're not trying to vote for the sake of voting. They're, vo they're voting for self-determination and community control because civil rights activists recognize, particularly in this area, that there was an inextricable link between pulling the proverbial lever of democracy and taking control of your community in a way that might be able to beat back some of the the, the kind of un, the anti-democratic forces that Jim Crow actually represented. We oftentimes think of Jim Crow, um, uh, and I don't, I, I hate to say it this way. We, I won't say romanticized, but we don't think about it as uh, how complicated it actually was and, and what it did to. Um, to impinge upon people's upwardly mobile aspirations. So what we see over the course of the 20th century is people using politics as a way to try to assert control over their communities, to do precisely what Thad Melody and yourself wrote about in, right, in the 21st century, right? In some ways, we're revisiting strategies that people laid right, the foundation for in the mid 20th century, um, in large part because they recognized that politics was essential. Um, in this place particularly, in the United States, in a small R republic, um, to making their communities work effectively. Thank you, Julian. You really laid out the basis of how community wealth building fits into a broader historical arc 
of communities seeking to empower themselves uh, over and against the ways in which we've seen some of the more deleterious effects of our political system operate uh, across time and that we're revisiting this notion of community wealth building is part and parcel of how communities have, have begun or have always generated uh, the, the ways in which they have sustained uh, their presence uh, in American democracy. Melody, Julian has painted a, a historical portrait of how community wealth building fits within a longer arc, a longer trajectory of the challenges of American democracy. I know that in your work, you really speak to the necessity of having the principle of equity anchor uh, policy decisions such that it serves to not only address these historical and deeply uh, entrenched uh, inequalities, but also so that we build a flourishing uh, democratic society for now and into the long future. Can you talk to us a bit about how equity uh, really fits within your vision of how we should uh, engage in policy making and policy thinking uh, in our contemporary moment? Absolutely. I think equity has to sit at the center of the work that we, we as, a, as a national community, we as a local community um, do. And equity, and people often talk about equality, but we talk about equity in terms of ensuring that individuals and communities have access to um, that which they need to fully participate in democracy, to fully participate in their community and in the economy. And I, I want to perhaps play off of uh, some of what Julian was saying and, and his chapter in the book, he writes about voting rights and the importance of participation um, and the relationship between political participation and economic participation. One of the first things that I was able to work on when I was a, a young new staffer working in the House of Representatives was an amendment to uh, the Voting Rights Act or um, a reauthorization of a part of the Voting Rights Act, Section 203, which is a section of the Voting Rights Act that pertains to language minorities. So we're talking about individuals who are citizens of the United States. They may be, for example, Native American, um, uh, the first Americans, and but need assistance to vote, um, language assistance to vote for any number of, of reasons. Um, and this section of the Voting Rights Act, which we reauthorized in the early 90s, um, gives them access to that, those kinds of services. Um, that's not something that everyone needs, that, but that's something that some citizens of this, of this country need so that they can fully participate. Without that, they wouldn't be able um, to let their needs, their desires, be known, they wouldn't be able to elect the representatives um, and to consent to be governed, and those who they believe will carry out their wishes and to architect the kinds of policies that they need and want um, on the local, state, and, and federal level. So not everyone needs it, but that's something that they need. And we can see this stretched across different aspects of the American of the democratic landscape. You take education, for example, and the deep inequities that we have um, in U.S. education policy. And on the one hand, we wonder, well, you know, 
Why isn't everyone able to succeed? Um, why isn't everyone um, uh, doing well um, reading at grade level? Um, why do we have a skills gap in the United States? The list of questions and why don't we and why can't she or he goes on and on and on. But if we pull back and we look at the deep-seated inequities that sit in our education system, both as a policy matter and as a resource matter, then we can understand why we have uh, achievement gaps at kindergarten. At kindergarten, you're five years old and we see dramatic uh, achievement gaps at that point. And then we see third grade reading gaps and the list goes on and on. Unless we start to address those kinds of issues, we will find that people will continue to be unable to participate politically and they won't be able to participate economically. And as we know, we look across the arc of history, it is those two things combined that allow not only individuals and communities to live to the fullness of their potential, but it is for our entire nation to live to the fullness of its, of, of its potential. We, this is one of those situations where some may think that I am succeeding, I am doing well, but unless we look across um, a community and we see where those who are most vulnerable, those who are least able to participate until they are able to participate, it holds all of us back. We are, we're like a, a team that's playing on a field with you know half the team on the field and the team that's on the field has an arm or a leg tied behind its back. It, it, it doesn't work. And that's why equity I think is so essential to these conversations. Indeed, equity is core. Uh, it's core to ensuring that we have viable political participation as well as viable economic participation and building the whole, the whole citizen, the whole uh, democracy for, for all of us. That we've heard about uh, this really enormous, bold uh, goal of putting equity at the center. Give me an example. I, I, wanna, I want you to explore with us a bit an example of how this manifests itself uh, in the everyday. When we hear community wealth building, we see all of these experiments going on in Rochester, in Cleveland, in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, in Richmond, Virginia, in Denver, Colorado. Uh, what would it look like? What does it look like in terms of uh, could worker cooperatives help build this deep democracy that we're arguing for one that enables us to put these bold goals at the at the forefront equity at the center and build deep political participation and deep economic participation yeah thank you and yeah i really think that um this is the flip side of equity is the second principle is agency and encouraging uh, the agency of individual people. And so for democracy to function, people have to believe that their voice matters and that it actually matters whether they vote, it actually matters whether they engage, you know, in, in the local community. And, you know, I think local politics is an important arena because the, the fact is it's easier for an individual person to have a major impact or a significant impact, or even simply be heard at the local level where your representatives are most uh, immediate, and there are many, many opportunities for participation as compared to something you know as vast as, as the federal government, 
you know, which is far away and you, you may be able to submit a form on a website and, and so forth. But in terms of having a face-to-face -face conversation with a federal official who's going to make a decision that impacts your life, it's, it's, you know, few and far between compared to your opportunities to influence, you know, what's happening at, at, the, at the local level. And so that's part of the community wealth building strategy is to push not everything, but to put, push some of those decisions down as, as some of that um, decision-making power down to the local level where people can, you know, can influence it and touch it and have a, sh a shape and actually saying, what is our community plan going to be? You know, in terms of economic participation and economic agency, that is another piece of it, you know, and this goes back to, you know, Democratic theorists, back to John Stuart Mill and even arguably to Adam Smith. You know, if what people uh, are doing in a capitalist economy is, repeating rote instructions under the direction of somebody else and there's no capacity to develop uh, your own uh, imaginative capacities your own capabilities as a human being capable of creating and doing things and, and so you know voice in the workplace you know is an important goal in itself and i think something any democratic society uh should try to encourage whether it, you know it's the unionization or, or taking the next step of, of workplace democracy in some form. But I think, um, you know, those, those structures also have a benefit for local democracy and community wealth building because you're, when you have a worker-owned firm, you, and I should say, I'm going to shout out my wife right now, Adria Sharp, because she's an expert on this at, at Rutgers and has done a ton of research on this, as has many others. You know, employee-owned firms are more likely to be rooted in place. They're not getting up and leaving to another community or another country you know, for a greater profit opportunity. They, they tend to be more anchored in place. And so that's one of the reasons they're attractive, you know, from a wealth building point of view, because they help stable, stabilize things. But also, you know, when they're really successful, they can actually help individuals not only get living wages, but actually build wealth. You know, and so community wealth building is not opposed to individual wealth building. In fact, individual wealth building can be you know, a component strategy to allow someone to get assets, you know, whether in a home or a share of stock, you know, to do more than just meet their immediate needs, but actually, you know, save their future and, and, and you know, and, and move forward to some, you know, version of, of the American dream. So, you know, I would say that Richmond has explored this, you know, and continues to explore this in the Office of Community Wealth Building, how to nurture, you know, worker cooperatives in Richmond. There are other organizations around the state who have the similar thought, but, but you, you did mention Cleveland. So, yeah, that's probably you know, the most developed uh, example in the U.S. of a community deliberately saying, we're going to create cooperatives and we're going to link it to uh, the flow of contracts going through our institutions, and in their case, you know, their, their healthcare uh, uh, institutions primarily. But we're going to do this, you know, not as a nice thing to do, but because uh, it's going to help strengthen the neighborhoods in which we do business. And they got uh, the anchor institutions and the universities on board to support that plan. And, and, and it's, it's had some success. Uh, the UK is doing a very similar strategy in some of these cities in terms of let's look intentionally at, at contracts and procurement. I'm hopeful that um, with you know, the recent changes in, in sort of politics in Virginia, there's more openness to think about how do we um, use public contracting, not to do handouts or giveaways, uh, or anything that's you know would be struck down by the Supreme Court to be blunt, but but to you know incorporate community elements you know into laws and allow you know uh, a city of Richmond to be more creative 
and, and thinking about the different ways you know a contractor adds value besides just being the cheapest one available. So yeah, I think it's an important strategy, but I'm, I'm not going to define or equate community wealth building with any single strategy because I think I think there's a variety of things that point in, in, the, in the same direction. And you know, you go from locality locality, it's going to be different depending on, on what's easiest uh, to do in terms of what's the resource available, what there's, what's there support to do, what the law allows you to do. And I just jump in because I know Thad's a sports fan. Might another example also be the Green Bay Packers. Um, you know, that is a football team that is in part owned by the community. Um, the community has a stake in, in the Packers and uh, not just because they're rooting at in the football stadium, but also as a matter of economic interest. Um, and there are other teams. I, you did a shout out to your wife. I'll do the one to my husband who's, who grew up in Canada. Um, and similar models um, exist with Canadian football as well. But uh, I just thought that I'd toss that out for my fellow Tar Heel fan. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I actually wrote an article about the Green Bay Packers like 25 years ago. You know, <laughs> and there's no way Green Bay would have a team in the NFL without a law like that. Unfortunately, what I learned in writing that article is the NFL is basically written as governance rules so that there can't be another Green Bay. And so maybe it's part of the community well-building strategy. The federal government needs to push them on that to, you know, you know change that rule. That's interesting, Thad. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, at core, what you're demonstrating or what you're talking about really is a, a core set of values that really ground uh, and orient community wealth building as a policy ideal, as, as a paradigm, if you will. And this is where I want to turn to Julian, because what we're witnessing uh, in the American Spring, as it's been termed, is a broad push across cities to begin not only to address deeply entrenched inequalities and injustices, but also to begin to build new possibilities that not only redress those injustices, but also to then recalibrate American democracy in a fundamentally forward-looking, equitable manner. Julian, can you talk to us a bit about uh, those movements for social justice, both historically and in our moment? and how they go to, how they point to uh, new directions or new opportunities for us to realize an American democracy that never was. Right, so I think, you know, no one knew better um, that things done on purpose can only be done, undone purposely than African-Americans in large part because they not only had to suffer through enslavement, but Jim Crow segregation. And what they end up doing over the course of the 20th century during the freedom struggle is activating the machinery of their communities to do battle with deeply pernicious forces. And in doing that, they lay the framework for the social justice movement, right? They, for instance, they re-equip Christianity, which had in many ways been used to rationalize the uh, right uh, enslavement. Um, as a liberating mechanism with liberal Protestantism and, 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 and the social gospel to think about um, how can we turn inward into our communities um, to equip ourselves with the types of institutional and organizational strategies that we need to um, 
meet the challenges of Jim Crow segregation. I think a lot of people, and I'll bring this toward the latter portion of your question, look at the direct action strategies and the civil disobedience of the civil rights movement and don't recognize it. That was the last resort. That was, those were strategies that people formulated only after they had been deeply organized in their communities, labor organizations, right? There were voting rights organizations. There were all manner of organizations in African-American communities dedicated to social justice that culminated in the most visible aspects of the civil rights movement in the mid-20th century. And I think if and it lays the foundation, the bedrock uh, for how we think about or how people begin to think about uh, activating their communities to use politics, in particular politics, call a civil rights movement for a reason, right? Because people are trying to gain political rights. And what they end up doing is laying the foundation for people um, in the twilight of the 20th century to say, this is precisely what we need to do um, to deal with the continuity of this tortured racial history that keeps coming up. And I think by looking intently at how civil rights activists organize, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and not just the, the sexy stuff like the direct active protests, we can recognize that if, if they could mount strategies against Jim Crow segregation, um, then it's possible to deal with the kind of enduring legacy of white supremacy in the early 20th century. And there are all, all, all manner of models that people have, have drawn on. Uh, protests right now are a way to draw attention to the, the kind of the deep inequities that continue to exist. And I think one of the things, though, that I think we would be wise to revisit, uh, particularly to, to build community wealth and to reactivate these communities is to not lose sight of how quietly and deeply organized African-American civil rights or, or organizations dedicated to civil rights were and how long it took them um, to build up the momentum to systematically dismantle de jure segregation. You're so right, Julian. I want to thank you for uh, your response because what you do is you underscore uh, the ways in which you have this broad civic ecology and this broad associational ecology uh, of organized communities uh, from civil rights organizations to voting rights organizations, the club movement, uh, African-American institutions, fraternities and churches. You have this broad civic culture um, that's deepening democracy. Um, as we continue on, folks, I want to thank our audience for being with us. And we have some great questions. Uh, that are coming in and I want to encourage everyone to use the Q&A function that's available to you to begin to, to write your questions. We're going to uh, engage them as we go forward and we're going to keep a running tally of them because they're helping us frame and inform uh, the possibilities for uh, community wealth building, not only in Virginia, but also across the nation uh, and with our colleagues globally. I'm turning now to, to Melody because we have an interesting question that, that has come to us. Here's a question, Melody, where we have uh, one, of, one of our uh, colleagues who joined us this evening are wondering, you know, we're talking about these big issues, you know, equity, these bold issues, community wealth building, policy, government. We have this deep historical injustice uh, that we're trying to redress. Uh, we're in the moment of having to, to make a, a, a particular shift or you're advocating a particular shift. What do individual citizens, what are, what's possible uh, for individual citizens 
to make real and to promote equity uh, within uh, American public and within the American public sphere. Or, you know, what can I do? Right. Help me. What right. can I do? <laughs> um, which is a wonderful question. And to the person who asked it, thank you. And for those who are wondering the same, thank you for thinking that. Well, a number of different things. And first of all, as individuals, we are, we are neighbors, we are employers, we um, are individuals who run nonprofit organizations. There are a number of different roles that we have as individuals. And in all of those different roles, there are critical things that we can do. And I think it, to start, there is an important mindset uh, to bring to the table, and and I will say it's uh, it, it it isn't always easy, but it is always important. And a question that we can ask ourselves is how do we set the table? Meaning, who's at the table with us when we are thinking about important decisions? Um, when we are um, making plans in, in our community or in our neighborhood, or when we are thinking about hiring and we're part of a hiring committee or we're a decision maker um, in, that, in that capacity. Are we setting the table so that we have the diversity of voices, that we include a diversity of experiences, um, and that we are making decisions of, and including people in a way that is a, a fair and, and uh, where the aperture is broad. So I'll, I'll give you an example and some work that I've done in building education to employment pathways for young adults uh, and doing this work on a national level, but thinking about it in communities, urban, rural, tribal communities all over the country and working with uh, cross-sector collaboratives that are doing this work, we make sure that young adults are at that table. Um, as they say, nothing about us without us. Um, so if you are bringing an equity mindset to that kind of work, you don't set the table to do the work um, in support of young adults without young adults there. There are young adults who have often, some of them have been homeless, some of them involved, been involved in the juvenile justice system. Um, some of them have um, not, are trying to finish uh, high school or get a GED or trying to get a post-secondary degree. And they can come with all kinds of experiences, including the most important set of experience, which is their own. Um, so it's that mindset that says, reset the table so that they are there as well. And also think about the policies that may be affecting the way that you are, are making decisions, whether it is um, something in your nonprofit or something in your place of employment. And I'll give an example, keeping with this one. Often we think about bringing, uh, we have standards for who we're going to hire, for example, uh, that are not necessarily useful or appropriate or necessary. I need a, someone with a college degree to do X. Do you really need a person with a college degree to do that? Or is that some kind of, um, are we using that uh, as a placeholder for something else, including potentially our own comfort with who we think ought to be our colleague or our peer? Um, so rethinking um, policies, or if you're in a more informal situation, thinking about, again, the, the way that you're setting the table to, to include people and that you have a variety of voices there. 
I think bringing that mindset to different aspects of your life, whether it's work, whether it's uh, volunteerism, uh, I've seen this pop up in the the national service community. You know, who's who's doing national, who's doing service for whom, as opposed to can we all combine um, and do that kind of work together? Um, so bringing it to those different environments, um, I think, is an, an important place to start. And if we start to do that mindset shift, um, it'll become uh, it'll become a habit, and that will start to translate into the broader community. Thank you so much, Melody. That Melody has had us uh, has us at at the table, but she's resetting the table, resetting the table to welcome uh, the worth, value, and dignity of all of our citizens, not to bring them just there for representational dressing, um, but to welcome their knowledges, the experiences and the depth uh, of, their, of their humanity that then enables us to develop broader, fuller, uh, more robust uh, policy, um, policy prescriptives and programs. Something has come up consistently in this conversation on community wealth building and it's a conversation that is in the broad American public. And that's the question of reparations or redress that how does that fit within this discourse around community wealth building, uh, particularly when we see when community wealth building is this comprehensive strategy and it is a conversation that has engaged uh, a broad swath of the American public? Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's a really critical question. And we, we do have a chapter you know, uh, in, in the book by our colleague, uh, Laurie Balfour from UVA, which addresses reparations, and I think her approach is extremely thoughtful. Um, in terms of reparations, uh, can't be reduced to like a single one and done payout or something of that nature. That, that does actually an injustice, the scale of injustice that's been done and continues to be done to African Americans you know, in, in this nation. So, so to me, a reparations framework is part of the moral uh, underpinning for community wealth building. And it, it's something that we all have to understand and continually have that conversation, both the truth about our nation's history and the reality uh, about the ways that African-Americans continue to be systematically disadvantaged. If anyone doubts this, just look um, you know, at the, uh, the net wealth of, of, of African-Americans versus, versus whites. And that the gap is you know, well over 10 to one. What explains that? The only plausible explanation is the history of slavery and everything that fell from that that has never been appropriately dealt with. So, you know, if I think from a, a policy standpoint in terms of what you could actually do, I'll start with local and then actually, uh, you know, flip to national. You know, here in city of Richmond, you know, fundamental understanding the way our metropolitan area is set up is understanding the way that Richmond never really desegregated schools and that you know, uh, segregation flipped from a, a city scale to a metropolitan scale. And the United States Supreme Court ultimately said that was okay. And so set up a, a, a clear incentive for, for first whites and then middle-class families of all races to flee the city, you know, and, and take up in Chesterfield and Rico County, whose populations boomed in the 70s and 80s, while the city was declining and became, you know, uh, more and more African-American, more and more high poverty. 
and in fact abandoned. And then back to Melody's point, then we asked the question, why aren't the kids in the city of Richmond doing as well academically? Well, they've been disinvested in as a matter of policy and the Commonwealth of Virginia is saying that is okay and morally acceptable way to organize schools, to, to allow you know, the middle-class families to go here and the poor families to be here and have you know basically no interaction between the two groups. You know, here in Richmond in the last year, we've just barely began to have a conversation about equity within the city school system. We haven't yet touched the, the regional issue, which is where I think the conversation needs to go. How do we do uh, not just funding you know, solutions, as important as that may be, how do we actually talk about having a regional you know, approach to schools so all, all kids can have an equitable and fair approach and put an end to separate but equal justified in terms of geography. You know, to, to flip it up, you know, to um, a more national level issue, you know, uh, Derek Hamilton, another economist, I think is largely friendly <laughs> to our approach. He writes about, you know, baby bonds as a wealth building solution that may be a universal policy, but obviously would give African-Americans, you know, huge advantage compared to the status quo. It's the idea of of every person at birth be given access to you know uh, wealth that would mature at, at some period of time that could be used for a variety of purposes whether it be education starting a business or just having you know the money to do a down payment in a home and so we know that access to wealth is a barrier to entry into the middle class in so many ways you know for everybody you know you know white black hispanic everybody that's something that policy could address if we were intentional about doing it. It could be done in a universal way that is race aware, you know. And so I would endorse some variation of that, you know, as a way, you know, to 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 build a politically plausible way to uh, reduce the racial wealth gap. But again, you know, reparations is that framework. You know, if we got that done, there'd, there'd still be so much more to do. And so I, I think that the key point Laurie makes is. It's not just one thing. It's something we're going to be talking about the next 10 years and for the next 100 years and probably more after that because that's how deep the legacy we have to undo is. Thank you so much, Thad. And uh, yes, and Lori has made uh, an incredible contribution to the volume uh, with her essay on reparations that really has us thinking, that really uh, calls us to think uh, very fundamentally and foundationally. Uh, about democracy. And this is where I want to turn to Julian because as Thad was talking, Thad was talking about uh, disinvestment uh, as public policy. Uh, disinvestment uh, not only historically but also in the ways in which some of the norms and mores of our policy prescriptives operate in the present. There's a question that we have uh, in light of this deep history. Um, do we really have uh, the an intentionality uh, to deepen democracy. Uh, what lessons can you offer us, uh, your thinking uh, from history, to begin to wrestle with that? Julian? That's a great, sorry, that's a great question. Um, I was the first one to make a mute mistake. Uh, <laughs> um, I think we have a tendency to pathologize the types of questions African-Americans have asked of government, right? Black folks in the mid 20th century weren't asking anything of government that their white and immigrant counterparts hadn't asked, asked for, right? During the New Deal and programs before that. And what I think they did is they recognized something that all Americans recognize, that government is essential 
right, to human thriving in, in a constitutional republic. And I think what they also recognized in the mid 20th century that we'd be wise to learn from is that political organization um, does not grow organically, it takes cultivation. And I will talk specifically about some of the social unrest that's taking place right now, right? It's, there have been um, any number of monumental, pardon the pun, symbolic political events that have taken place in the last 12 months. I think the civil rights organizers and activists of the mid 20th century would ask of us, if that is all you want from democracy, um, you need to ask deeper questions about what purpose democracy and a democratic system is supposed to serve in your life. I think one of the things that they would, I, I, I'm anticipating that they would want people to carry the torch beyond the kind of symbolic victories that have characterized the last year and um, organize their communities to do battle with the continuity of, of, of um, American bigotry in a way that not only makes life more livable for those who are, who, are, who are presently alive, but future generations. I think the assumption in many instances when we look back at the civil rights movement is those activists were, were doing that for themselves. I think that they were trying to pave a kind of democratic union that secured a future for people not yet born. And I think we have an obligation if we want to deepen democracy to think of it on those terms. It's not just about dealing with present trauma, but trying to make sure that future generations don't have to deal with the kinds of social ills that um, have this kind of shocking predictability in American life. And I think what we have to ask ourselves um, his, of, of, of the gone for gooders is why they were so deeply invested in democracy and how they felt it would work in their lives. And what can we learn from them to carry the proverbial torch forward in organizing our communities to meet these current challenges. Thank you so much, Julian. You set the you're following up Mel, with Melody in terms of not only uh, setting the table but welcoming Precisely. us, looking not only backward but looking forward. Uh, and it's that vision of democracy that really animates uh, the community wealth building. Uh, paradigm and the work that's uh, exemplified in this edited volume. Um, folks, we have a few more minutes before we close off tonight. I want to turn to my colleague Melody to uh, have her sort of provide uh, a few closing thoughts for us to go uh, this evening as we continue to contemplate this, um, as well as as we continue to engage in uh, the vibrant culture that is American democracy uh, in 2020. Well, I want uh, two things and to build off of what Julian just said, and one to, not that he needs my affirmation, but to affirm some, one of the things he said about building democracy for future generations. I have a a friend and former colleague, James Foreman Jr., whose father, James Foreman, um, was a, in the civil rights movement, an important civil rights leader. And my friend told me that when he talked to his father about this, his father would say exactly that, that in the most difficult of times, what they recognized was that they were building something and what they held on to was that they were building something for future generations. And I think that also ties with um, to this idea that as frustrating 
confounding and difficult as it can be for those, and I count myself among in this group, who recognize that the, the aspirations of democracy and the reality of democracy have not aligned. We still are striving for the aspiration that are um, the principles of democracy. However, the American story is one of expansion. It is the expansion of freedom. It is the expansion of democracy for more and more people. Yes, slow, and that is frustrating, and we can rail against that and often do, but at the same time, it is a telling story about the direction in which democracy goes. And I think this idea of community wealth building, which recognizes the relationship between the state, the local and federal, it isn't asking us to choose among them, but recognizing that they fit together. Um, and one that also recognizes that our, our existence in community and as individuals in community is critical to the relationship that we have to our political structures, to our economic structures, and to the promise and the fulfillment of those democratic aspirations. And most importantly, and this is what I personally hang on to, the beauty of this is that we get to decide. In, in our small R Republican democracy, we get to decide. And if as a community we decide that we do want to expand, we do want these things for ourselves and for the future, we get to shape that future and we get to shape the present as well. Thank you so much, Melody. As the poet June Jordan often said, we are the ones we've been waiting for. I wanna thank each of you for joining us tonight and I'm sorry for uh, coming in a bit late, but uh, this conversation has been incredibly rich. Um, the edited volume is something that really brings together a, a collection of very thoughtful, engaged scholars uh, who take seriously the possibilities of an American democracy that never was but can be. It's with that that we leave you tonight, only to join you. I know we're gonna continue this conversation again. I know we have something planned at uh, the University of Virginia in uh, January, and we're gonna uh, convene again uh, virtually with uh, down at Wake Forest later in the spring to continue the conversation. And there may be other uh, conversations to come. So I wanna thank my dear colleagues uh, for their time. And I'm gonna turn it back over to you, Thad, to close us out. Yeah, uh, thank you, Corey. And thanks for, uh, for moderating. And uh, I want people to know that Corey has not just a great moderator, he made a major contribution to this book with, with his piece. Um, which focuses on the connections between community wealth building and themes in the history of American democratic thought, and particularly African-American democratic thought, and particularly Martin Luther King's concept of the beloved community. And it's an excellent chapter, which is part of my pitch for you, everybody go buy the book, uh, <laughs> which you can do uh, via, uh, we have a website called uh, renewingamericandemocracy.com, and you'll find more information about the other chapters in the book and, and a link to order should you be interested. But really, you know, it's a privilege to be part of this conversation. You know, so so thank you, uh, Julian. Thank you, Melody. Thank you, Corey, again. And most of all, uh, thanks to all of you. We, I believe, over 300 people registered for this, which is great. And um, you know, we appreciate this. And you know, please check back in with the Jefferson School and the URL alumni website to, for future events of this nature to see what's coming up next. So. Um, 
that's all. Uh, hope to see everybody soon. Uh, stay healthy. Go Spiders. And uh, we'll see everybody next time. Thanks so much.